Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Physical Performance Manager at Essendon in the AFL, Justin Crow. Thanks for tuning in to episode 165 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So delighted this morning to welcome Justin Crow to the podcast. So Justin is the physical performance manager at Essendon in the AFL. So to accompany many other uh, heads of department I've had on the podcast uh, from AFL. So it's great to talk to these guys uh, in such demanding sport and at a really interesting time of the season, um, which is, well, just the start of pre-season. So naturally we discuss uh, the stuff that's going on in um, in Justin's department in the in the preseason, uh, looking at preseason progression, strength, power, uh, metabolic conditioning, um, and all kind of um, intricacies that come as as part of that planning process for the preseason. We also discuss their links with uh, the local university and the kind of research that's been pumped out um, via that uh, really close link between the two. We also look, given Justin's background as a physiotherapist, um, looking at injury prevention strategies, specifically hamstrings, uh, which is still a hot topic. Um, so it's interesting to to get Justin's uh, Justin's take on that um, on that debate. One thing that is interesting about the hamstring muscle is that at seventy percent um, of your max speed, you're only using fifty percent of its capability, and even up around 80 85 percent. At your max speed, you're only using 70, 75% of its maximum capacity. So you get right up near the max maximum velocities to actually train it and, and prepare it um, to do that in the game. But just before we get into the episode with Justin, I just want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar, and Human Track for sponsoring this episode today. So also big thanks to Forstex for also sponsoring this episode. So if you are interested in learning a little bit about the the Nordboard, which if you haven't heard about it yet, you can find uh, more information in my chat with Dr. Anthony Shield and separately in the podcast with Dr. David Opar. So they will all be on the link to the website at strengthofscience.com forward slash 165 and if you want to learn more about Forstex um, and what them guys are doing you can listen to episode 139 of the podcast that's strengthofscience.com forward slash 139 where I speak to uh, co-owner of Forstex uh, Dr. Daniel Cohen so that's certainly certainly not a sales pitch for Forstex but also talks about jump monitoring as a whole and how that can be imp- can be implemented implemented within your setting uh, at a club or with uh, individual athletes. So make sure you check uh, them couple of episodes out that I've mentioned to learn more about um, the, the two sponsors and everything else um, that goes along with what them guys do. So over to the podcast with Justin. Hope you enjoy. Again, would love any feedback that you uh, want to find my way. And uh, hope you enjoy. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this morning slash evening, I have the pleasure in speaking to Justin Crow, who is the Physical Performance Manager at Essendon in the AFL. So welcome to the podcast, Justin. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. 
That's a pleasure to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a little bit of background on yourself, um, previous roles, uh, and what you're doing at the minute at Essendon. Yeah, so I've um, had a go at trying to be a professional player, played one game professionally, uh, finished the physiotherapy degree, exercise physiology degree, uh, worked in rehab uh, with the Collingwood Football Club for a few years, and then uh, moved over to Essendon where um, there were an opportunity sort of to manage the team, um, high-performance team, then, um, yeah, probably got hit with a whole lot of uh, administrative and uh, management work that I probably wasn't ready for, so I did some extra sort of study in um, the area of management. Um, and that brings us up to where I am, or where we are. Nice. I'd love to chat to you a little bit about that um, administrative side of things and why you did that was it master of enterprise yeah. is that what the official title was yes yeah, so okay do you just want to talk to us a little talk to us a little bit about that and why you did it and yeah so i was um look, i think i would have been 28 when i when i sort of was in a position where i, where I was being required to manage a team of people um and a three million dollar football budget or high performance budget that um was in some senses overwhelming coming from a playing background and um even a sort of science background so I was enrolled in, in a degree at Melbourne Business School, which had um, a delivery mode which suited. It was one week intensive and then assignments. Um, so I did over two years, I did uh, four one week blocks a year um, of economics, um, of reading annual reports, and I suppose a whole lot of different things some management, some leadership components, and uh, yeah, I mean, it just sort of provided me a bit of background and helped me speak the language um, that I needed to speak to uh, to get things paid for and, and to try and uh, make my own thoughts about how to manage and successfully lead a team. Mm-hmm. I was actually speaking to Bo Sandoval, who's at the UFC with, uh, with Duncan French, and he did a very similar thing, dealing with budgets, Obviously, managing people, and he did a similar thing um, out of the one out of the one out of one of the universities out there. Um, is it is it more of a common thing now that people are getting these positions and thinking that my sports science degree or physiotherapy masters isn't going to cut it when it comes to this these kind of roles? I think you you can pick it up on the job, um, but it, it, it helps, and I think. Um, it's the sort of thing I, I wouldn't do until you're in that position. I think you're better off doing a master's degree once you're actually going back to work and, and, and relating. And the work you do in your master's degree, your assignments can be specifically work-focused. Um, that would be my advice. But, but I, I think unless you've got a reasonable size budget and also a reasonably large team, I wouldn't be rushing into it probably because of the cost and also the, the time involved. Okay. So it was self-funded. Uh, no, work work put me through that, which was good. That was um, okay. Nice. Was the first uh, contract that I that I um, signed, I just asked for that bit of help as well. Yeah, sweet, cool. So one thing I'm I, I would like to ask at the end, but I'm going to bring it forward now because it might lead us into um, some interesting discussion about your kind of philosophies and things. But most influential book that you've read and like I said before I don't want to go too Tim Ferriss on you but yeah it'd be interesting to hear what is that most influential book and then we'll jump off from there 
Yeah, so I um I put some thought into this, um, and it was hard to split two. Um, what I've come to is there's an author, a Japanese author called Haruki Murakami, and he um he went very close the last couple of years to being the Nobel Prize for literature. But he actually um he writes some quite wacky out there um fiction, but he wrote a book called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, um, where he basically um it's a short novel, but he just records his uh, experience of running and his um, a time where he trains for the New York Marathon and sort of, yeah, com- compared to all the rest of his fiction, it, it's quite different, but it's just a cracking book of just someone genuinely um, almost recording a journal of, um, of how they came to running and, um, yeah, it's, it's gold. I really, I really recommend it. Um, so what's what's the title of that? So it's what I talk about when I talk about running. Yeah, what I talk about when I talk about running, and um, it's it's a short, easy read. Um, I mean, I yeah, I, I like Japanese culture anyway, but it's in English, and it's um, yeah, if, if you're into marathons, into running, into um, just just the the pure um, part of it, I reckon it's it's a cracking book for from one of the one of the world's best best authors probably. And, and the book, I mean, the book that I struggled to um, probably in terms of influence on me was Andy Fragile, which was one of Taylor's, which I find, um, who I find to be a really uh, arrogant writer, but uh, also very thought-provoking. <laughs> so what, why that, how how's, how's that influenced what you do day-to-day at Essendon? Yeah, um, the, what I talk about, I talk about running bit is really just, just that, Getting back to that basic love of exercise and of um, of what we do, and um, yeah, n- never getting too far away from that um, in terms of supporting um, our young athletes and also our young coaches in their uh, in their careers. And, and then the anti fragile bit um, really relates to what we do at Essendon around um, preparing players for what is a very chaotic sport in Australian football and providing. Um, providing unexpected challenges, but, but also working on that attitude of being anti-fragile and just making sure that whatever that unexpected challenge is, you, you, you're better for it um, rather than just trying to weather the storm. Mm-hmm. So on my, on my little um, jaunt across the internet, Googling your name and seeing what came up in, in preparation for this, there was a couple of tweets that you'd put out, or one in particular, which was about training specificity um, and the kind of versus training chaos. And I guess that fits in quite nicely with what you just said. But what is your philosophy when it comes to injury prevention? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a great question. I, I'm well. My, my philosophy is, is in the shortest form is this: that we need to prepare our athletes, not protect them. Um, and preparing them means thinking about the hardest aspects of the game and the season, um, and then it, and the game and season that we're preparing them for is highly chaotic, and um, has a large amount of unexpected challenges within it. Um, and to be fair, all sports do, um, whether you, whether you're in a sort of a straight what might appear to be a straightforward Olympic event, you're still um, not unlikely to experience something unexpected. Um, on race day, and and that that's really what um, that comes down to for me. Chaos and some un- having some unexpected things in your training is specific, and um, 
and just that exposure to a high, wide variety of things, um, in my opinion, um, makes for more robust athletes. Mm-hmm. So in your in your role, like we discussed before, you're more on the kind of field based side of things rather than gym based. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Look, we've we've got a um, strength coach, Jesse Campisi, does a really good job for us in the gym. Um, my real expectation there is that. Um, each of our players has an individual performance plan and they might be looking to gain strength or gain weight or um, work on their speed, power characteristics and, and that their plan and their program reflects that. So I'm not spending much time in the detail in the gym um, anymore, um, but I am probably working more close with the coaches to integrate um, our football training with our um, the running demands of the game. Mm-hmm. So how does that, how do them to kind of the philosophy and the role linked together with regards to your can injury prevention uh, philosophy and, and how you implement, is it a lot of them that are implemented on the field or is that with your S&C coaches in the gym? Yeah, I, both? I, yeah, a bit of both, but a lot of it on the field. Um, I, I sort of am a believer in training, um, whether it be um, mental toughness, anti-fragility or uh, whatever it is in a domain, we want to use it. Uh, and, and most of the best time for that is on the field in football training. Um, so, yeah, just providing um, the, the, the right exposures to speed, um, to unexpected things. Um, I mean, only today, we just, players know what training is beforehand, but uh, they know it can change. So we ran ran a couple of duels a bit longer today deliberately. Uh, I hope no players listen to this because on Friday, we're going to give them an extra run uh, at the end. <laughs> but, um, but but you know j- j- just diff- different things um and, and, you know and within drills within football drills there, there's a high degree of chaos anyway which is brilliant and often messy training is some of the best training mm-hmm. so one thing that we chatted about before was uh, you attending leaders in performance in london which and i was there as well and one i, I didn't take and then i went to anyone that was speaking, but I didn't take loads away from it. But one thing that I found really interesting was, and two people mentioned it, was Sean Dyche, manager of Burnley, and Andrew Russell at Hawthorne. And I think I think Darren Burgess mentioned it as well, was one day in the season, or at least one day in the season, where the GPS gets taken off, no one's bothered about RPEs. And I think Sean Dyche said it was, it was Gaffer's day, where he absolutely obliterated the lads in terms of like the craziest running that could possibly do just to see where these guys are at mentally. Is that something that you would, you do at Essendon? Is that yeah. something that you would agree with? It's something to do in the past? That's a, that's a really good question. I think um, Andrew Russell and, and Burgess referred to it as having a reference point. Um, some, yep. Something players, when things get tough or um, deeper in the season, they can just mentally refer back to. Uh, there's a lot of merit in that. Um, I like sort of Steve Magnus sort of phrases it as a see God session. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll uh, fra- frame it in the right way and, and debrief in the right way. But yeah, at different times through preseason, we'll uh, yeah take take a bit of extra risk and um, yeah stretch stretch our players, which I think is an important part of their preparation anyway. But, but there's also that role that you're talking about in, in having a bit of a reference point. Um, for them to call upon. Mm-hmm. So that's more on the mental side rather than the physical side. Yeah, I think it, I think it is. Yeah, certainly on the mental side. But 
um, it, it, there's something to be said for just having that um, really big hit where you physically stretch someone. I think, I think there's a benefit there as well, as long as you respect the recovery from it. Mm-hmm. So with hamstring injuries been a, a big part of um, a kind of big block of the, of the injuries that, that are going on, how do you try to mitigate that at your Essendon? Yeah, well, mostly I wake up in the morning and I say a prayer to the hamstring gods. But uh, <laughs> beyond that, um, look, look, we, we do uh, some of the Nordic stuff um, in the gym. Now, I'm not quite comfortable with it from a movement point of view, but um, the evidence is um, strong. Um, probably the most effective thing I think that we do um, is we expose our guys regularly to um, max speeds. Um, I think uh, one of some of the hamstring injuries we see are when the game demands just just a higher effort um, and the player's hamstring might be required to um, output um, during training or during even some, some other games where, they, where it might be raining or it might be a different um, match style and they're not required to sprint as fast. Because one thing that is interesting about the hamstring muscle is that at uh, 70%, um, if you max speed, you're only using 50% of its capability, and even up around 80, 85% of your max speed, you're only using 70, 75% of its maximum capacity. So you get right up near the max maximum velocities um, to actually train it and, and prepare it um, to do that in the game. Just want to talk to you a little bit about why you're not so sure on Nordics with regards to the movement, although the research is there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, what are you not um, sure about? I'd rather the guys do something upright <laughs> to train their hands. Okay, yeah. Because um, that makes more sense to me. But um, that's it, really. I, I think that if, if we could, obviously, because the way gravity works um, and, and just in terms of providing that stimulus um, to the muscle, it's not as easy in that upright position. But if we um, can train them uh, and perhaps maintain that fascicle length um, another way than lying face down the ground. Um, I think I'd feel more comfortable with that. But um, that said, we, yeah, we provide a mix of stimulus within gym and, and part of that is that Nordic um, training. Mm-hmm. So one thing that's um, a potential reason for not using Nordics is the potential soreness for the, for the players. How did you get over that when you started implementing them? Yeah, I think that... Are the players into it? Yeah, I think players that, hate it? No, nah, players, players are good with it. I, I think it's a short-term um, barrier um, in terms of soreness. Uh, our, perhaps apart from our new draftees, our playing list would, would be performing that sort of thing with a frequency where, where they're not getting soreness anymore. It seems to be that low-frequency, low-volume um, training, Nordic curl training is, effect, is effective anyway. Um, so it's not really an issue, and, and to be honest, we, we just put in as part of a weights program, and it, um, it it gets done without any complaint. Just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Justin. So in part two, you can look forward to more chat around uh, injury prevention strategies and where running mechanics fits into that puzzle, which is a really interesting uh, little bit of a chat I have with with Justin in part two. 
But just before we do crack on, I just want to say a massive thanks to Black Box for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box are leaders in performance training equipment um, out of Belfast in Northern Ireland. So they design and build performance facilities for sports teams, SNC coaches. I know a couple of the um, Premier League teams over here have had their gyms kitted out by Black Box and are thoroughly satisfied with the um, with the service that the guys uh, from Belfast offer. So they manufacture a full range of strength training equipment from, like I say, from Belfast. Um, so if you want to check them out, you can visit their website and it's blkboxfitness.com. So make sure you uh, check them out. They're also on Twitter as well, at BLK Box Fitness. So over to part two with Justin. Hope you enjoy it again. Would love your feedback. So I just want to move on to the kind of stage of the season that you're in now, in, in pre-season. Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about the kind of planning, especially for the, the on-field stuff that you're over a lot more? Um, just the, the planning of that really and what that looks like, what progressions look like as you move through the the preseason because you've got a reason be long preseason that's right isn't it yeah we do so we'll um not play our first preseason match until mid february um which is you know still a few months away so we do have quite a long preseason relative to other sports um interestingly interestingly probably not as long as we're used to um my, my i've sort of got a full circle on this we used to talk a lot about um doing a foundation um, and getting volume early and then sort of sharpening up towards the season. I'll, I'll probably change my mind on that. Um, we're doing um, higher speeds, um, higher density change direction um, from day one with, with the real caveat being getting off-season programs right. So players have an eight-week eight break in between seasons and um, they're getting a lot better at, at preparing for the actual demands of proper football skill drills. Um, and it gives our coaches much better opportunity to actually uh, coach them in football. Uh, the, the other interesting thing we've done in this space, Rob, is um, our PhD in data analytics has written basically a computer model that we're able to put in all the constraints of pre-season. Um, so we can put in um, players have to have Thursday and Sunday off, for example. Um, I'd like our players, our pre-season progress at you know, 130% um, acute chronic workload ratio or thereabouts. Um, we don't like to do two big days in a row. All, all those sorts of things. And we're able to put all the constraints in. We're able to put in what they've done in the off-season. We're able to put in what our, um, when our first game is and what the demands of that are going to be. And basically, it just tries to find the best fit um, of training that matches... Um, that gives the maximum maximum time with the coaches or the maximum volume of training with the coaches. Um, and while, we, while we've never cut and paste that into a pre-season, it's sort of guided our thinking a bit about how we um, plan out our sessions um, with, with the basic underlying philosophy that more time with our coaches, learning how to play football, learning how to play as a team is a benefit. So that's in terms of the structure of the week? Yeah, structure. Is that what you week. mean? Structure of the week, okay. uh, progression of volumes. Um, and also, uh, yeah, I suppose progression from from week to week. So, what made you change your mind and go full circle? Mm. I we just get better quality training when we when we can do high speed football training. It's, it's quite unrealistic to train um, 
anything less than a sort of highly competitive, high speed um, drill. Um, so, so from a football coaching point of view, it's a large advantage. Um, then, from an conditioning point of view, the more we tested it, or the more we sort of um, experienced it, um, we sort of lost that fear of getting into speed early. And um, I, I, I'm probably just moving further and further away from traditional periodization models and, and thinking more about um, natural progressions um, and, and football training. Mm-hmm. So how do you know the guys are ready when they come back from the off-season to be able to go into that kind of training? Uh, there was obviously one one preseason that was a bit um, unsure of whether the guys were ready or not. Yeah, yeah. So Before you got the confidence? Yeah, so I mean, how do we know? Only really through trust. Um, we're limited in terms of how much we're able to contact them. Uh, we've had a lot more confidence the last couple of years because we've had a lot more contact. Uh, there's been player-driven contact. Um, yeah, it's just, there's an element of just explaining the message. And look, if you say to a player that we can come back and we can run one kilometre reps or we can come back and we can um, do football training, depending on how how much speed and how much change of direction and how much kicking you put in your off-season program, um, it's an easy decision for them. They're going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so it's a, bit, a little bit like the American sports where you're um, restricted to contact during the off season. Is that yeah, what, is that that, that's saying? true. So we, we can't um, we can't sort of get players to download data for a watch or anything like that. Um, we can call and ask them how they're going, um, but we, we can't um, badge them or um, sort of have. Well, we can give them a program. We can't give them a. Um, we can't enforce sort of how, how it's how it's actually undertaken. Um, but most players are, are pretty good at keeping in touch. Mm-hmm. So you're, you have links with uh, the university. How does, that, how does that benefit what you're doing day-to-day at the club, that relationship with the uni? Yeah, so we, we have a, um, a PhD who's David Carey, who's done some great work publishing the area of Great workload ratio. He's a mathematician by background. Um, he's he's just been brilliant because he helps our performance analyst um, with, with more complicated coding and more complicated analysis. Um, he's help helps me um, make um, large amounts of data meaningful, and, and he just helps with um, the practical aspects. He helps to answer questions like um, the question of a third our new draftees into the program two weeks after everyone else and they've probably done next to nothing before they start. Um, you know, what, what's, a, what's a good progression for them? Um, and that those sort of, being able to explore those sort of questions from a data and objective point of view sort of feeds into our decision making. So them kind of answers are publishable? Are they getting published? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've published. Oh, is it yeah, yeah, so we've published some of that. Um, some of it is really just making what is known research or, or known applications in the literature um, boutique to us. So, for example, for an acute chronic workload ratio um, being associated with injury risk, um, you can pull that from um, know, Tim Gabbett's or, or Blanche's articles across sports, but we're able to run that exact same um, study on our own players in our own data. Um, over a number of seasons and develop our own 
sort of injury risk um, estimates that, that are going to be more accurate because because they're actually our players in our program. Uh, other AFL clubs in a similar, I mean, you may not know, you may know, in, in very similar positions with strong links to a university for exactly that purpose to answer questions in a kind of robust um, kind of way? Yeah, most are. Most are, I think, um, because of because of funding, some um, almost rely on, on that relationship um, to, to to cover off some aspects of the work. But, but I'd, yeah, I'd be surprised if, if there are any clubs out there who were, who were completely doing things on their own. Cool. Just moving back to the the stuff on the on field, um, running mechanics. I just wanted to. It'd be great if you could touch on um, running mechanics and where they fit in the. I suppose that back to going back to the um, injury prevention strategy, where where they fit in that philosophy. That's a really good question, Rob, and I don't know that I have a, a good answer. I'm sort of um, thinking about this myself all the time. Um, I see rehab as from day one of rehab an opportunity for a player to get better. Um, and in all cases, there's something they can do that first day. Um, and second day and third day, they might not actually be able to pretend, you know, even, um, they might not be things they can do for a long time, but often there's running mechanics, um, or post, running postural exercise or, or something that you can get started very early. Um, and it serves a couple of purposes. One is, one is to actually go work on something that the athlete might need to work on anyway, um, in, a, in a more focused sense, but also just make them feel like a normal athlete um, earlier and making them um, feel like, yeah, right, not a special person in rehab, but actually, you know, an athlete who, who's working to get better. Um, so, I mean, that's a pretty general answer, but that's probably how I see things in that area at the moment. So you mentioned the the term feel like quite a few times in there. How important is it that psychological side of the injury to make them feel like they're not a special case, special case? Yeah, it's, ma- it's massive. Um, making pl- well people, this isn't just athletes. Making people feel feel valued is um, really important, and also making them you know um, actually feel like when they turn up um, to work that um, they're working on something that's going to help them in terms of what they really want, which is playing good football or, or whatever those outcomes are. Um, as early as possible, um, I believe, sets players up for better, better outcomes anyway. So I've been involved in a, um, a football club, soccer club over here, that the manager's insisted that unless no one's allowed in the injury room, in the, in the, uh, in the physio room, unless you're injured. And they're kind of... Segregated to the side, and kind of, they've got to be in early, so they're in earlier before everyone else, and they go home later after everyone else. But that's obviously got nothing to do with the medical team. That's a kind of coach coach led um, scenario. Is there anything? I'm not saying anything is like that at your place, but how coach led is that? Um, yeah, that interaction, at Essendon. That's a, I mean, that, that's a really cool question. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a physio, so I, I would, um, I don't, uh, 
place any stigma on, on the, the physio's workspace. But um, I can understand how a coach might. Um, no, our, our coaches structure a little bit differently to other clubs. So our, our, we have performance coaches um, who are traditional assistant coaches, I suppose, but they are responsible for a group of eight athletes each. Um, and they expect to know everything about those athletes and they're expected to go to the physio room and sit with the physio and, and, and the athlete and um, and the rehab person or whoever it is and be all across their plan and support them through it. Um, so we're feeding information into performance coaches. Uh, they're asking a whole lot of questions and it, it creates a very healthy uh, relationship and environment where um, there's a responsibility taken by the coach um, to be part of that journey. Um, whether it's rehab or in a healthy athlete in their prevention or, or whatever else. So I think um, that we've been working on that for the last few years. I think that um, shows dividends in terms of how athletes end up being managed. So what what was the catalyst for the shift? Yeah, well... To go towards them small groups? It's actually um, a Toyota model, uh, sort of matrix model where there's coaches in charge of strategy um, there's a head coach, but then everyone else is responsible for the people um, and and creating those people or developing those people to be able to provide the best service to the strategy as possible. Um, so it's just a shift in overall organisational structure um, and a shift then in the, the, the sort of the duties of that, that coaching role. It becomes very player-focused um, and... I really like it. I think it puts a lot more um, responsibility on the coach and the player to use um, strength and conditioning, to use nutrition, to use physiotherapy as services um, to get the best out of the player. And um, yeah, I'd endorse it actually. It's been um, been a big step forward for us. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. There's so many questions off the back of this, but how... Who assigns the players? Are they assigned strategically to, the, to a certain coach? Is it position-wise? Is it random? Yeah, so by position. Um, so, I mean, we have so there's 45 players on our list. Um, those who are, have been in the system for five years or, or older um, are dividing the defenders, attackers and midfielders. Um, and then um, basically they have a coach who is an expert in that area to some degree. And then players in their first or fourth year, um, we have development attacking midfield and defensive coaches who um, who pay attention to them. And even in our strength and conditioning team, we have um, Paul Turk, who's a senior strength and conditioning coach who works with five-plus years specifically. And then um, Des O'Sullivan, who's a really good young guy, works with the um, first to four years specifically. So that's, um, yeah, I suppose just giving an extra attention to detail and, res- and specific responsibility for different athletes within, within the bigger picture so will them on the performance side report to the individual coach or they'll report to you to go to the coach how does that kind of line of communication work yeah from a management point of view to me but in terms of the player management um to the coach so my expect my expectation is um that while i'd like to be informed if something's important from a broader um performance point of view that, that they're constantly having conversations with um, the performance coach and the player, uh, whether it be Jess in the gym or um, Des or PT on the floor, they're, um, they're always communicating and, and, and that should work both, work both ways. They should be seeking out the coach and the coach should be seeking out them.
and and the, the player, the player as well is obviously central to it. So the player should be um, uh, also driving those conversations. Cross, and with regards to the the kind of communication of data on a daily basis from a team point of view, that goes straight from you to the head coach, or does that go via individual coaches? No, no. Yeah, so, so the data goes um, in organised fashion to the performance coach and the and um, and their relevant um, conditioning coach. So I can see everything, um, but I'm relying on on these guys to be across their individual players. Um, and, and, and the head, co- head, the head coach is a, bit, is a bit like me in that he'll keep an eye on things. If something looks out of place, he might um, zoom in, but he, he is relying on, on these um, relationships uh, um, to be effective. Mm-hmm. For Given your experience in, in with, with this structure, what is essential for it to be able to work? I think a head coach who believes in it um, and who's prepared to, prepared to let go of some of the detail um, is it essential? And then, um, yeah, and, and then a, just a clear understanding of people of what their role is um, is really important as well, particularly if it's different to, to what traditionally what the role might be. Mm-hmm. Nice. Brilliant. Well, I know you've had a, um, a full day, uh, so I'm going to let you go and get on with your evening. But where can people uh, get more information on you? Um, social media wise, email wise, uh, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, so Twitter's Twitter's a good one. Um, that's probably the one platform I really keep connected with. So I'm at crow underscore Justin. So C R O W underscore Justin. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll generally reply to people if um, if you're in touch that way. So yeah, I, I find it a great resource to sort of keep um, across a lot of what's going on. Nice. And some of the stuff that's coming out of the universities, you, you post on there? Yeah, yeah, some, some of it will be there. Um, look, Dave Carey's the lead researcher, so you'll, you'll see him on papers through BJCM and other places. But, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of it will be fed through that Twitter account. Perfect. Happy days. Well, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, have a good evening. A pleasure. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 165 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Justin. Just want to say a big thanks to Justin for giving up his time in such a busy part of the pre-season to, uh, to come on and have a chat for the podcast. Also, big thanks to the three sponsors today, Black Box Fitness, Vald Performance and Force Decks. All of them can be found online at blkboxfitness.com, valdperformance.com and forstacks.com so got some really superb guests coming up over the next couple of weeks make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and you will get on a thursday uh, uk time in the morning uk time um, a brand new episode with a um, superb practitioner or researcher from the world of strength and conditioning and sports science so hope you're enjoying the podcast again as always love your feedback and i will chat to you in episode 166